Uh, Mark chapter 6, going to read together from verse 45 through to verse 52. This is God's word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up uh, on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the land, and he was alone on the land. Sorry, out at sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making painful headway, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts hearts were hardened. We're going to see uh, this morning, as we we look through this this passage, um, Jesus revealing his divine presence. Right, that's what he does in this, in this story, and that's what he continues to do. Um, so, so we'll see, first of all, then, as we, as we think through this, number one, Jesus uh, reveals his divine presence. Uh, we'll see then, secondly, the response to his divine presence. And thirdly, then, how do we today receive his divine presence? Okay, so the revealing, the response, and the receiving of his divine presence. Um, as, you, as you've probably picked up already, um, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle. We looked at this last week. Remember where he fed 5,000 men, not including the women and children who may have been there? Um, he, he, he had five loaves and two fish. And, and with that, after blessing it and breaking it and, and uh, distributing it, he fed. And they're all satisfied with, with, with the feeding they received from Jesus. And this is very evocative of, of uh uh, the history of Israel in their minds, you know, when, when, when the people, the Old Testament people of Israel came out of Egypt and they wandered around uh, the wilderness, they had nothing, uh, and God fed them. Remember, he fed them with, with manna, this bread from heaven. And so, uh, in, in a similar way, Jesus then was, was feeding the people with bread. Um, and, and we saw last week that, um, you know, fever started to reach fever pitch, uh, probably this sort of insurrectionist movement was, was, was gathering pace around Jesus. Um, and yet what we see today is that Jesus continues his plan. He, he, he keeps going with his mission, which is to show and tell the kingdom of God and provide access to it eventually through his death on the cross. So uh, that's, that's, that's the scenario that we, that we meet when we come into this text today. And as you can see in verse 45, you know, uh, this action is already connected with the story. You know, immediately it says he made his disciples get into the boat and he dismissed the crowd. Right, it's almost as if uh, he had to, to catch his disciples up. They, they were maybe getting caught up in the, in the fervor and, and, and the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the big move. And, and the disciples started agreeing with the crowd. And so Jesus said, he made the disciples get into the boat. You lot get in here. Go. I'll join you later. Just, just, just go on to the other side. So he had to remove them, and it says he dismissed the crowd here. And, and eventually, as the crowd disperses and Jesus uh, manages to slip away, um, it tells us that he went up on the mountain to pray. You know, just needed this alone time between him and his father, um, ca- carving out this solitude. 
just this pace, the frenetic pace of ministry right now, not to mention all the, the insurrectionist movement, you know, the, the, the revolution is gathering pace, and Jesus uh, just wanted to hit pause on all of that. He wanted a breather. He wanted to reset again. Uh, Mark, who, who wrote, put together this gospel account here, shows Jesus praying only three times. We know Jesus prayed a lot, but he only demonstrates Jesus praying three times. Firstly, at the start of Jesus' ministry, when he just you know, comes onto the scene and, and he starts to preach and, and do miracles, and, and suddenly this crowd came straight after him. Right then it says Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, to be alone with God. And then we see it here, secondly, um, after this uh, tremendous miracle. And the third and final time that Mark shows us Jesus praying alone is, is in a garden called Gethsemane. The night that he was betrayed and, and handed for his unjust trial and his execution on the cross. And each time when Jesus uh, is praying, it, it, it seems to be because he's getting uh, maybe threatened or, or there's a chance that he could get knocked off course, you know, distracted by what's going on around him, the story, the, the, the narrative that's unfolding um, around him. You know, and so, and so he, he takes this time. He, he, he instead dwells with God in that, in that very intimate, that very quiet, that one-to-one uh, moment. He's refreshed in the presence of God the Father. He's reminded of who he is in, in God and perhaps even receives fresh power you know, to continue the mission uh, that he has been given the faithfulness to his father. And so we go from the madness of the crowds to that moment of solitude that Jesus carves out with his father. And then from there on, he, he performs this powerful work, right? this great sort of revelation of his own divine uh, presence. But he does that from this place of solitude with his father, this place of, of rest with him. And so we can see already, can't we, this importance of this resetting, refreshing Time with, with God, so this intimacy that, that Jesus enjoys. I suppose it's worth um, at this moment addressing the question of, of quiet times. We call them quiet times. Uh, people do anyway. You know, should we do quiet times as, as believers in Jesus? Um, is that what this passage is teaching us here? When, by the way, if you're not, not familiar with the term quiet time, Christians use the, the term to, to refer to a set day, a set moment in the day when you, you go away with Jesus, rather like what, uh, what Jesus does here. A um, bit of quiet, um, a bit of peace where you can uh, read uh, God's word, you can spend time praying, you can just enjoy the presence of God. And, and people call that quiet times. Should we do that uh, as people? And if so, where do we do it? When do we do it? How do we do it? Well, I think it's safe to say here that if Jesus thought it was important to spend time in the presence of his Father for that moment of intimacy and, and to be refreshed, then how much more so is it going to be important for us um, who need to strive, I suppose, more to receive that, that intimacy uh, and, um, and carve that out? How we do that, where we do that, when we do it, it's going to vary between each of us, right? You know, depending on your scenario and your situation, your family commitments and your work and all the rest of it. Um, but basically, yes, I think we should be carving out time da daily if possible to, to spend with God. Um, that's going to look different for you. I know that. But I would just say do whatever it takes uh, to, 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 to have a moment with, with God in your day. And when I say a moment, I don't just mean 30 seconds, you know, with half an hour if you can, 20 minutes in the morning if you can, an hour if you can, you know. 
It's not about how little you can get away with here. It's, it's about doing whatever it takes to enjoy the presence of the Father. Asking how much should I do you know, in my quiet time is probably like asking how much air should I breathe in a day. You know, just breathe because it's good for you. How much food should I just eat because you need it? Um, therefore, come, come to God because you need him. You know, just like you need food, just like you need air. Uh, come to your Father. There's ways that you can do that. Um, we're not going to get into so many just now, but uh, some people uh, use and enjoy the Lectio 365 app that you can get from Prayer 24-7. That's very good. It gives you a scripture and it gives you some prayers to pray um, just to help you reflect. Some of us use the Community Bible Reading Journal where we read passages of scripture together. For you, it might just be a case of working through the Psalms. Start at Psalm 1. Read Psalm 1. Enjoy it. Enjoy what God is telling you, what he's saying to you through that Psalm. And just the following day, Psalm 2, whatever, whatever way it works. Do whatever it takes. Okay. Let's move on. Verse 47. It's just remarkable. There's a distinction. They're in the boat on the sea. Jesus, where is he? He's alone, it says, on the land. They're over there. He's over here. And from wherever he was, uh, up on the mountain, somehow or other, he was able to see them. And he saw that they were making painful headway. Because it says in verse 48, the wind was against them. And then, look at this next bit. About the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 to 6 a.m., you know, just before the sun starts to rise, starting to see blue flecks in the sky, perhaps. Then it says, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, says Mark. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out. They were terrified. He meant to pass them by. That's such an intriguing thing, right? We've got, we've got, I mean, typical Mark here, he just uh, gives us these one, one-liners. You know, he came to them walking on the sea. That's it. In that short verse, he communicates something that is absolutely incredible that they're seeing. And we'll think about that in a few moments. But it says that Jesus meant to pass them by. That's such an intriguing phrase. Why, why did he mean to pass them by? What, what's going on there? Was, was he intending to sort of walk uh, beyond them just so you can get to the other side first and almost kind of you know they he would ignore them on their way and see them at the other side was that what he was intending uh, was he intending to pass them by so they wouldn't see him but he could see them and, and and he would get get there that's not what jesus was intending when, when it tells us here that, that, that jesus intended to pass them by what he was doing was he was intending to reveal his divine presence to them his power his majesty he wanted to reveal that to his people. And where do we get that from? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a bit of background here. There are two big moments when God passes by two of his servants, two of the titans of the Old Testament. He does it once with Moses, and he does it once with Elijah. Um, in the scenario with Moses, we see in Exodus 33 and 34, uh, Israel had come out of Egypt, and yet they had rebelled completely against God. They'd, they'd made this golden calf. They bowed down. They worshipped it. They looked to it to provide comfort and hope when only God could do that. And as such, God refused to go with them any further. All right? And if it wasn't for Moses, that could well have been it between God and Israel. But Moses gets down on his face, he, he prays, he intercedes, he says, Oh Lord, you know, uh, remember your faithfulness, remember your covenant love towards us, continue with us, please. And as Moses finishes his intercession, his prayers for the people, he says to God, Please, 
Yahweh, God's name, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. I'll pass by you. And when I do, says God, I will proclaim my name. And my name is Yahweh, which means I am. That's my name. So you come up onto the mountain of God, onto Mount Sinai. Uh, I'm going to hide you in a rock as I pass by you because no one can see me and live. And so he did. Moses climbed up to the mountain of God, met with God. God passed him by with all of his ferocious power and majesty and, and declaring himself to be God. And he held Moses in a cleft in the rock to protect him. And it says that, that Moses, when he realized that God had passed by, he bowed his head and he worshipped. Elijah, likewise, in 1 Kings 19, similar scenario. God passed by him, revealing his awesome glory and majesty. In both cases, Elijah and Moses, they were, we could say, renewed in their knowledge of, of God. They, they've had this profound encounter as the divine presence of God passed them by. They, they experienced something of that in, them, in their bodies. God showed up and he declared to both of these leaders, both of these titans of the Old Testament, I am. I am God. And so with that in mind, then we return to this text. And we see in the same way then Jesus intending to pass them by was him revealing his divine presence, coming before his apostles. And this this uh, line of thinking is, is confirmed in verse 50. And Jesus realizes they were terrified and he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. In the Greek there, it is I, literally is two words. Jesus says, take heart, I am. See, Jesus here consciously using the Greek form of the divine name of God, I am. I'm going to pass you by, take heart, I am. He's saying to his disciples here, don't, don't worry, it's me, it's, it's your friend, it's Jesus, you know me, you, you can hear my voice. And yet at the same time, he, he passes them by revealing to himself, to themselves, that he is God. And you see, um, in, the, in, in, the, in the Christian faith, we, we, we believe that, that Jesus is, is, a, is a man, he's a human being just like us, and yet he's also God. That's what the Christian faith has always believed about Jesus. Uh, he's fully man and he's fully God. He's not 50-50 or a bit of both, uh, you know, to top up. He's fully man and fully God. He has a divine nature and he has a, a human nature. And yet they are united together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And as the disciples have experienced, Jesus, the man, has, has compassion on his people. He understands his people. Jesus, the man, enters into their experience, their sufferings, their hunger. He, he knows, he can feel that because he's a, he's, a, he's a human being just like us. 
And yet, as they're starting to see, and we're realizing as we go on, Jesus is also God. He's the one who feeds his people in the wilderness, just like God did. He's the one who, who, who walks out on the water and saves his people. He's the one who saves them with a word from all their struggling and their futility. He's the one who forgives sins. Before we move on, though, I just want to point out to you uh, one thing here. Uh, Do you notice at the start of this section, Jesus sends them away in order to reveal himself to them. He, He withdraws himself from the crowds in order to pass by them. You know, he wounds so that he might heal. And we, 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 we often times can experience that in our own Christian um, understanding, our own Christian experience. At times it will happen to you, it might happen to us right now. Not, not that our relationship with Jesus is like a, a yo-yo where we're you know, with him, away from him, with him, away from him. That's not what I'm saying here. But, but, at, but at times, God in his grace and mercy allows periods in our lives where it feels like he has sort of withdrawn or he's distanced himself, let's say, for, for a particular moment. It feels like he's wounded us, shall we say, in order that he can reveal himself with more majesty and with more power in your life, that you might taste uh, his goodness in ways that you wouldn't have done otherwise, that you might experience his healing power. And so this is not a yo-yo, but, 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 but he does this so that you have a greater knowledge, a deeper intimacy, that you might experience his divine presence even more. A friend of mine was dying of cancer several years ago, and I went out to visit him just weeks before he, he did die. And um, I was talking to him and, and uh, just asking about how it happened. You know, how are you doing spiritually? And what's going on in your heart? And he, he said to me that he absolutely hates death. He hates this cancer. And yet he has been experiencing, since his diagnosis, depths of intimacy with God and a sense of his presence with him. So much so that he would not change his current situations because of the experiences of the Lord's love and his presence with him. The Lord sometimes sends away so that he might pass us by. The revealing of the divine presence, we see that. Um, So secondly then, let's move on to the response to that divine presence. We've got Jesus intending to pass them by but then they, in the boat, you know, things are not going well. Um, in verse 48, for example, even before Jesus turns up, they're making painful headway. They're struggling at the oar, uh, rowing against this great wind, uh, probably exp- uh, um, getting, you know, getting rid of a load of energy. They are straining. They are pushing. And the wind is just holding them where they are. They're going nowhere. They're futile without Jesus. That's what life is like without Jesus. Right, And there they are anyway, struggling at the oar, and they see, just as the light is starting to appear at the horizon, just before daybreak, they see a figure walking towards them 
on the sea. I mean, they thought they were having a bad night right there. This thing started to come towards them. And it says, it tells us in verse 49 and verse 50, they saw this figure coming towards them and they thought it was a ghost and they cried out and they were terrified. This is not normal to see someone walking towards you in the middle of a storm on the waves. No surfboard, no sandbar. Uh, Jesus was walking on water. And yet you can see here Jesus' compassion. We've seen this already, uh, you know, before he feeds the 5,000. Jesus' compassion to his people, to the apostles, sat in that boat, struggling, freaking out, terrified. He, he comes to them. He speaks a word to them. And he says to them, take heart, you know, be of good courage. It is I. I am. Do not fear. He, he, he brings a certain element of calmness and, and reassurance with his familiar voice. And yet, let's be fair, the context was nothing but familiar. Jesus walking on the water. In verse 51, he got into the boat with them, their friend. And it says the wind ceased. And everybody was utterly astonished. And we can understand their fear at this divine presence. You know, it's not ordinary, this whole scenario. Um, if you or I were in that boat with them, you would be sharing the same terror um, that the apostles were, were sharing. It's certainly not what they expected to be happening at that moment. But even beyond the weirdness of this scenario with someone uh, walking on water, uh, there, there is this moment when the divine presence breaks into their ordinary experience of how things ordinarily are. And when the divine presence breaks into the ordinary, that evokes fear across the board. It is a terrifying thing because when the divine presence breaks into their ordinary experience and your ordinary experience, everything shifts. Okay? Everything turns upside down. It inverts. Suddenly the grandeur of God becomes so great in your eyes, so augmented, so obvious, so clear, and yet the smallness of your humanity becomes equally uh, obvious to you, becomes so aware of your smallness and your insignificance and the grandeur and the greatness and the majesty of God. That's what happens when the divine presence um, breaks through. That's why there is fear. You sense that you don't belong. You sense that you're standing on holy ground. You, you sense that you are in the place of God, that, that you, you're an alien somehow in his, in his world. We, we, we see that most clearly in um, Isaiah 6, uh, that classic passage in the Old Testament where, where Isaiah, the prophet himself, experienced uh, something of this divine presence during this extraordinary vision that he had. Uh, in fact, we could say that the vision... Uh, was more real than real life. It was that clear. It was that um, uh, uh, fundamental to him. And in that vision in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah sees uh, the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Right? The Lord was seated on the throne, the train of his, his um, uh, priestly garments, uh, sorry, his kingly garments filled the temple. And, and he was surrounded by angels and heavenly creatures. And, and, and do you remember Isaiah's response to that great glory, that divine presence? Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm lost, he says. I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
I, I cannot exist in the, in the majesty of God, in the, in the divine presence. Woe is me, I'm undone. See, the divine presence reveals our smallness and our faults, um, magnifies our sins. Right? Ordinarily, in ordinary life, we're pretty good at minimizing our sin, um, uh, ignoring it. We can sort of park it and, and go through the routine of ordinary life. And, and that's how we deal with it. Um, and even as Christians, we can become very good at that, minimizing it. Um, but, but when the divine presence, when God comes in, in power in this remarkable way, it's like uh, opening the curtains of a room that's been in darkness for, for, for weeks and weeks. And, and when the sunlight floods in, you suddenly realize how much dirt there was lying around. That's what happens when the, the presence of God breaks into the ordinary. You see things you hadn't noticed before or you'd conveniently forgotten about. And of course, we, we see a similar, similar phenomenon uh, in, our, in our own history as well, outside of, of Scripture, um, particularly when, when I've been reading a bit about the, uh, what they call the evangelical awakening, I suppose, in this, the 18th century in, 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 in um, England and Ireland and, and the United States and all that, um, as it's now called, uh, during the ministry of John Wesley and, and George Whitfield, and um, even, even during the, the 1859 revival here in, in Ulster. Um, quite frequently you read descriptions of people being what they described as struck down almost like they've been hit by lightning filled with terror you know, and, and what's going on in, in most cases is that they're experiencing they've been exposed to that divine presence in ways they've never experienced before and some, you know, when you read the account some remain like that for days until they receive peace from Jesus himself when he calms the storm uh, that's going on inside them. Fear from the presence of, of God. But ultimately, we're given a little more information here in verse 52. Ultimately, they were afraid, it says, because they did not understand the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Ultimately, their fear, says Mark, was because of this. Yes, they were afraid because of the divine presence. Yes, they were, their fear was natural given the, the weirdness of the situation. But ultimately, according to Mark, they were so afraid because they didn't get the thing with the bread. They didn't get the loaves. They couldn't see or accept that Jesus, their friend from Nazareth, is indeed God. They couldn't believe it. He was the friend they knew, of course. They marveled in what he did is pretty cool. But they had trouble forget, forget, um, remembering that he's the one who also, like God, forgives sin. He's the one who, like God, can speak to the natural elements of wind and waves and they obey him. He's the one who feeds the crowds in the wilderness. He's the one who passes by to show his glory. He is God and man. And it says they didn't understand the signs. They couldn't read the signs about the loaves and the fish. They didn't have a framework for somebody who was both God and man. And so despite the signs and despite the teaching and the evidence and the power, they resisted him in, in the deepest parts of themselves. It says their hearts were hardened. Uh, in Luke 24, we see another scenario very, very similar to the one we've just read. This time we're not in the boat, but we're in a room. Locked. And Jesus 
as we know from Luke's testimony, has already died on the cross and he's already risen back to life. And he's actually been chatting to a few other unnamed disciples. But at that moment, in Luke 24, Jesus appeared again in that room with all the the apostles that was locked. Jesus appeared there. And like we see here, it says the apostles, when they saw Jesus, they were frightened. They were terrified yet again. And it said they thought, oh no, it's another ghost. Here's a ghost. Here's a spirit. They were terrified. And again, Jesus speaks to them with his heart of compassion. And he said to his friends, why are you troubled? It is I. And then he ate with them. And then it says in Luke 24, he opened their minds to understand And he promised them the Holy Spirit. You see, it took Jesus' death, his resurrection. It took his opening of their minds and hearts. It took the coming of the Holy Spirit to teach them and remind them and give them faith before they understood that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. And it's the same today, of course, um, on our own. When faced with the divine presence of God in whichever form that takes, it takes for us Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit to understand that he is both God and man, to understand that when he comes among us, he hasn't come to get you and to do you in, but he's come to to save you and to love you. And so like the disciples here in Mark 6, we we need God to open our hearts and our minds. We need God to send us his Holy Spirit. Only then can we respond with awe and and, and gladness at the divine presence when it comes among us. Only then can we say, yes, God is here. Brilliant. Welcome. With reverence, we can we can, we can enjoy God's presence. We, we don't have to fear him. That's the power of the cross, right? That's, that's, that's the resurrection. Uh, that's the sending of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it takes our faith and it moves it to fear. Sorry, it takes our fear and it moves it to faith. It takes our terror and transforms it to trust. It takes our chaos and brings us calm. So what happens when Jesus comes to us. Okay, so we've thought about the revealing of the divine presence, how Jesus passed them by. We've we've thought about response, and that's fear, unless God sends us, uh, he opens our hearts and sends us his spirit. So thirdly and finally then, we're going to ask ourselves practically then, how do we we receive the divine presence? Um, how 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 do we open ourselves, so to speak, to the divine presence? Um, remember, uh, we've kind of seen a bit that Jesus in this scenario, at the very least, sends them away so that he might reveal himself to them. Um, But the point is that Jesus wanted to reveal himself to them. He wanted to come to them. He wanted to pass them by. And he saw their plight and he wanted to rescue them. In chapter 6, verse 34, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. And he fed them. He cared for them. And so it's the same thing here as well. When Jesus 
uh, saw his disciples. He had compassion on them. He wanted to, to be with them and to give them peace. And I, I'm, I'm underscoring this right now because before we do anything as his people, we have to understand that it's his response first. It's his heart for his people first. Right? It's his compassion it's his love for us first. It's not our actions, our, you know, our religious um, processes that, that, that make him love us. If we mess up that order, then we mess up our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. He has compassion. He wants to come. So with that in mind, then, uh, what can we do, I suppose, to receive the divine presence, if, that, if there is even a thing? Um, how, rather, how can we experience his power, his presence, the calm that Jesus brings, the salvation? How, how can we know that? Or in other words, how has Jesus promised to come and be present with his people? Because if we understand that, then, then, then we can start to see uh, what we can do. Well, typically... Um, this is understood in two ways, ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. Ordinary means extraordinary means. The, the old guys used to call it the ordinary means of grace, and we might add the extraordinary means of grace. These are the ways that Jesus promises to come and be present with his people. So if we understand what they are and we do them, then we can, um, in faith, receive the divine presence. Let me explain the ordinary means of grace. This is how Jesus comes to his people ordinarily to know and experience the divine presence. And they're, they're classically, there are three uh, parts to the ordinary means of grace. The word, the sacrament, and the prayers. The word, first of all, is the way that we can re receive his divine presence. That's what we're doing right now, right? In the word of God, God speaks. He has a voice. He wants to speak to his people. Do you notice in verse 50, by the way, um, what's the first thing that Jesus does? Um, he, you know, he, he, he saw them and they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them. Even before he got in the boat, he spoke to them. The, the, see, the word is God's communication of himself to his people. And, and through his word, God is revealing himself to his people. So when you hear his word, you are receiving God you know, through his word. The divine presence comes through the word. The word is life, the scripture teaches us. You know, God says at the beginning, let there be light. And there was light. His word is powerful. It is effective. And today, uh, through the scripture, or rather through the Bible, um, uh, we, we hear God's voice. And that's, that's why we prioritize here at Foundation so much the preaching of, of God's word, the opening of it, the, the understanding of what it, what it says and what it can mean to us, or rather what God has it in intention for us. That's called expository preaching. And, and, that, and that's why it's so important, because we want to hear God's voice from the scripture. Not just the preaching, of course. It's, you know, we hear God's word in, in, our, in our singing uh, insofar as it mirrors and reflects God's word in Scripture. Um, you, you hear God's word when you read the Bible. Someone actually quipped one time I saw on social media, if you want to hear God's voice, read the Bible out loud. And you'll hear it. But yeah, in your times of solitude, you know, um, listen to the word of God. It's the way that he promises to come to you. Okay, the word, 
Second means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments. That's another way that God promises to reveal himself to you. And by sacraments, I mean uh, the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion, a.k.a. the Eucharist, whatever term, the table sometimes, um, the Lord's Supper and baptism, the, the sacraments, the, the ways that God promises again to, to preach to his people and be present with them. Um, it, it's, it's the word in action. Right? It's the word made visible. Uh, through the sacraments, you can taste the word. You can, you can wash in the word. You can be nourished by the word of God. That's what's going on. And that's why they're so important. And you might, you might uh, be sitting asking yourself, well, why are we not having, therefore, communion here at Foundation Church? Because we used to, right? We, it used to be our ordinary practice to do it every week. And uh, the, the long and short of it is because of the, the uh, COVID, uh, we've, we, we haven't done that. We just didn't think it was wise to, to get people gathering and, you know, help themselves to food. But, you know, as things are opening up, um, we we're hoping in the next few weeks that we can start enjoying the gift once again of, of communion and the centrality of the sacrament in our, in our um, gathering as a church. Word, sacrament, and prayer. Don't need to go too much into that, but just suffice to say, Jesus himself prayed. Um, the word instructs us to pray. You know, it's, it's a, prayer is a gift. Uh, we're hearing God's word through scripture, but then praying is speaking back to God. It's like a, it's like a conversation uh, with a partner in the heavenly places. Through prayer, we receive God's divine presence. So the ordinary means, word, sacrament, and prayer. And all of these are used and blessed and, and attended to by the Holy Spirit. It makes them effectual. Right? It makes them powerful. They actually do something. They're not just empty acts or routines that we go through. They're infused with spiritual power because uh, God blesses them, the Holy Spirit uh, attends them and uses them. That's why, for example, we, we, we always pray uh, for illumination when we're reading Scripture together on a Sunday. Um, you, you, you might often hear me say, you know, Lord, as, as, we're, as we're opening the Bible, would you open our hearts? Would you, would you take this external word written on the page and would you make it internal to us? You know, would you press it down deep? Would you open our eyes? We're, we're asking the Holy Spirit to take the, the meaning of grace and, and uh, plant it deeply. So how do you receive the divine presence? Well, you listen to the word, you eat the bread, you speak the prayers. And when you do that, God is present with you. And of course, these things form the, the backbone of what we do together as a church when we gather. Therefore, if you want to receive the divine presence Go to church. Engage with a biblically faithful community of people who worship God and are driven by his word. Because it's there that, that through the means of grace, God's divine presence is promised. You know, when we gather together, it's as if Jesus is laying out a meal and he's inviting you to come and feast with him. So why do we bother snacking and settling with McDonald's versions of spirituality when, when every Sunday the king prepares a lavish banquet for us to come and enjoy in his presence? So they're the ordinary means, right? Uh, the word, the sacrament, and the prayer. And that forms the backbone. But then we've got the extraordinary means uh, of grace, the extraordinary means where we might receive the divine presence. And again, when we read the scripture, uh, um, we look at the way that God reveals himself in very remarkable uh, ways throughout scripture and throughout history. Um, we've seen it here in Mark 6. We see it with the writings of the apostles later in the New Testament. We see it in the early church as well. 
um, where, where the Holy Spirit is pleased to continue revealing his presence and his power among his people. And so the extraordinary means, we could call them, of the divine presence being revealed to us uh, through dreams that we may have, through visions, through words of prophecy, even through the interpretation of tongues, which are sort of unknown languages, I suppose, unknown prayer languages. The Holy Spirit is pleased to continue um, to reveal his presence and his power to his people in these extraordinary ways. And I say extraordinary because it's not to happen every day, necessarily. Um, doesn't, doesn't always be our ordinary experience. But these extraordinary means, like the ordinary means, they are all intended to serve and strengthen the church, to encourage the church. You know, we're, we're, we're the community on mission sent out in the name of Jesus. And so that's how we understand the divine presence among us, is through these extraordinary means. It, it, it is part of what it means to be a healthy church. And so, you know, just to be clear, it might be that we don't all experience dreams and visions and prophecies. Some may, some may not. We may not all experience them at the same time. Some may, some may not. But the point is that as a community, of people with diverse gifting and experience and ability, we together are edified. We are strengthened. We are blessed. When a person has a, a prophecy or, or a vision or what have you, it is intended to build up and to strengthen the church, it is a means of grace. Just as we come into land, the thing I want to emphasize with all this is that it's not either or. It's not like you have to pick, well, I'm going to go with the ordinary means this week and next week I might try the extraordinary means. It's both and. It's both and. Uh, We're called to humbly receive every gift that God uh, gives to strengthen the church, every means that God promises to use to communicate his divine presence to his people. That includes ordinary and extraordinary means of his grace and his presence among us. Both of them are signs that the Holy Spirit is at work. Both of them signify the divine presence among us. And we are called in scripture to hunger after them both. It says, eagerly desire these gifts. And I realize this is, this is challenging. It, it might be challenging to you, depending on your background and your, your tradition, um, depending on your faith itself. Um, and yet, it's something that we're called to pursue and embrace together um, so that we might know the divine presence among us. Let me conclude with a few bullet points here. Just to sum up, um, maybe you feel like you're in that boat with the disciples in some form or other, in, in the middle of a storm, choppy waters, darkness all around. Maybe you feel like you're getting beat up by what life is dealing with you. Um, perhaps you're struggling at the oar, exerting a lot of energy, but getting nowhere. Um, futile progress. I want you to remember these quickfire things that we've seen this morning together. Number one, Jesus has compassion on you. You are not alone. Number two, Jesus will come to you. He will. 
He's the man who knows and shares and can experience your suffering. But yet as God, he has immense power to move mountains to save you. Number three, he will come to you and he did that through his cross, his death and his resurrection. That's so you can enjoy him and know him and live in the divine presence without fear. Number four, therefore, come and belong to the community on mission, the local church. Come and feast with all that God has given that he lays out for us. Come and be filled. Fifthly and finally, when you have been satisfied with the goodness of Jesus, then help others to come and feed at his table. Invite them to the banquet and find life and satisfaction in Jesus.